When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny Abdeljabar. Daniel, What's up, man? (laughs) How you doing? (laughs) I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. What's up, bro? How are you? Chilling, as per usual. Awkward silence. All right, I'll have to carry this episode. All right, guys, what is up, everyone? (laughs) Um, Before we get started, I want to give you a quick message, a quick note, and I think you all know what this note is about. If you haven't filled out the SurveyMonkey survey, then please do it. It is the number one way to support this show, and the SurveyMonkey survey is in the show notes. And when you fill it out, you can win five hundred dollars. Isn't that Amazon right? Dollars. Amazon dollars. But Am- yeah. Excuse me. Amazon dollars. And with all the banks crashing nowadays, Amazon dollars are probably worth more than real dollars. So um, do it, please. It will really help us out, and we would really appreciate it. And once we get enough of you fuckers to fill it out, <laughs> we don't have to do this anymore. Which I think will make not for a little while, (laughs) not for a little while. Yeah, but yeah, please fill that thing out um, and think about all the things that you could purchase with five hundred dollars in Amazon money. Think of all the nonstick pans that you can buy. Just think of something, Danny. If you had five hundred dollars just given to you in an Amazon gift card, what would you buy with it? Mm, Probably uh, something for my Jeep. I don't know. A winch. There you go. Something for your Jeep. If you want something for your Jeep, fill out the Survey Monkey survey. It takes you about three minutes. Three minutes and four seconds. Um, Danny, okay. So uh, we are monitoring the situation going on in Israel right now very closely. Mm-hmm. So for all of your Israeli news sources, you can tune into Bro History, what we specialize in. Honestly, I've actually tuned out, and with all seriousness, I've actually tuned out of Israeli politics, and you and I used to follow it pretty closely uh, over the years, but over the last six months or so, really since the new government has came in, I've kind of made an effort not to pay attention to Israeli politics, um, just just because it kind of beats you down after a while. But now there's some very strange developments that, to be honest, we've been kind of predicting... um, in so many ways that there was going to be ultimately a clash between the the uh, religious Orthodox Jews and, and the secular Jews in Israel, and sure. it's it's playing out right now in in Tel Aviv with these large scale protests. So today we're going to talk about that, um, the prospects for an Israeli civil war, 
which has been um, kind of the tagline for for most shows that have been talking about that. I'm sure this will be the name of the episode, the Israeli Civil War. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, you know, I think it's important when we're talking about this because, you know, Israel, at least historically, has been kind of the third rail of uh, politics. You know, you don't really talk about it, you know, you tread lightly. So for the folks that are new uh, that, you know, haven't been listening to Bro History before, uh, I am Danny Abdeljabar. Uh, it is a Palestinian last name. I'm half Puerto Rican and half Palestinian. And, you know, I just wanted to put that out there because while I'm not culturally Palestinian and I'm not Muslim or anything like that, I think a lot of times I wanted to make sure that, you know, check my bias because I do have opinions uh, and they don't always line up with, you know, the Israeli uh, government's opinions. So just want to say that there, but we'll try our best to be as, as, uh, as objective as possible. You know, we want to show you the history, some of the background information, you know, and I think what's... The reason why I say this a lot is because a lot of people don't recognize that that's my background. Funny story about that. I um, I was in Barbados a few years ago with uh, a bunch of friends. And uh, one of my now good friends who I had just met then, we were you know, in the car. They were all pretty buzzed. I'm driving. They drive on the wrong side of the road in Barbados, by the way. And uh, he, he goes and tells me, you know, I forget what, what exactly we were talking about. It's just weird drunk conversations. But the topic came up of like people he doesn't like. And uh, he was like, you know, I, I just really, mm, I, I really don't like those those uh, Puerto Rican people. You know, they're, they're just, they're the worst. And everybody in the car knows that I'm half Puerto Rican and just start chuckling. And I'm like, hey, dude, I'm I'm half Puerto Rican. He's like, oh, oh. He's like, oh, oh sorry about that, man. Uh, doesn't matter because Puerto Ricans aren't the worst. It, the Palestinians, they're the ones. <laughs> they're the worst people ever. I, I can't, I never met a Palestinian I liked and literally everyone's dying in this car, uh, you know, because I'm half Palestinian too. And it's funny because my mix is not common. Um, and he just happened to dislike, dislike both of your, both of your, uh, both of my heritages, both, both of your national heritages. That's, that is pretty funny. So yeah. what he was, this was a, cab driver or your friend this is my my now good friend um you oh, know, he's okay. he, he's he based his like opinions on like a few boyfriends that he had in the past that like treated him wrong or something like that so that's why he had his his you know prejudices against both of my heritages but you know it was just kind of a funny moment he's still embarrassed about it till this day i hope if he's listening that he's not too embarrassed of the fact that i brought it up on the show but um yeah that's uh Kind of the reason why I like to formally announce what I am, <laughs> uh, especially in times like this, to make sure that, you know, there's no, I'm not hiding anything. This is what I am. Yeah. Sound, it sounds like kind of like a racist New Yorker. It's like, man, those fucking Puerto Ricans yeah. with their fucking music <laughs> and their cologne. Like, yeah. hey, I'm Puerto Rican. Like, oh, no, 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 not those Puerto Ricans. They're not, not you Puerto Ricans. It's, you know, Puerto Ricans are good. They love the family. It's, it's those, it's those fucking Palestinians. What I don't like. <laughs> That's pretty much how it went down. But then 9-11. That's kind <laughs> yeah. of, it kind of sounds like one of those blue collar, uh, kind of racist New Yorkers, but. Right. But it's well, coming you know, out of like, like a very liberal, very gay guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Well, I guess racism flies in all colors. That yep. is. All right. Well, does. why don't we talk about the topic of the show? Um, okay. I think we're about eight minutes in. And we have talked about nothing yet. So Israel is um, undergoing a political crisis. The other day, 
about a week ago, uh, Israel's president, uh, Isaac Herzog, he said to the Jerusalem Post that Israel is on the edge of the abyss. And um, you know, some other generals said that they could be going into a period of civil war. And just to clarify, the president of Israel is, you know, a ceremonial position for the most part. Um, but, you know, the question is, is there a civil war going on? Well, at the very least, it's certainly a very heightened cultural war or a political war that's going on. And for the past 12 weeks or so, there's been these large-scale protests over legislation that would that would weaken the Israeli Supreme Court and then it would also consolidate power to the Knesset. And right now the Knesset is 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 mainly dominated by the hard right winger ultra orthodox co- coalition. I'll read right from the New York Times. Um, so Mr. Netanyahu's governing coalition, the most right wing and religiously conservative in Israeli in Israeli history, says the judiciary has granted itself increased authority over the years. The government also contends the Supreme Court is not representative of the, of the diversity of Israeli society. In its proposed, proposed judicial changes, the government is first trying to change the makeup of a nine-member committee that selects judges for the court. The proposal would give representatives and appointees of the government an automatic majority on the committee, effectively allowing the government to choose the judges. The government also wants to curb what it calls the Supreme Court's overreach by drastically restricting its ability to strike down laws that it deems unconstitutional. Critics say that the proposal overall would place unchecked power in the hands of the government of the day, remove protections afforded to the individuals and minorities, and deepen the division in an already fractured society. They also fear that Mr. Netanyahu, who is standing trial on corruption charges, could use the changes to extricate himself from his legal troubles. So, um, you know, there's Heavy there's shit. a number there's a number of different angles, and of course, there is the the looming corruption charges or excuse me trial at this point. Um, and you know, a lot of people just look at this, and, and I think this is you know one of the primary reasons, at least for Netanyahu's uh, motivation, is that you know he he wants to change the court or, or put loyalist into the court so he's uh you know he's he doesn't go to jail (laughs) that's one way to look at it no we'll definitely cover the actual proposed changes a little later so we'll we'll get into all of that we'll we'll get into more of the technical stuff uh later on in this episode but let's just go over the macro level stuff um so over this weekend so we're recording this on march 29th this will be released on the 30th in the morning this prior weekend, the protests get worse because Bibi, he fires his defense minister, Yoav Gallant, for opposing the judicial overhaul. And, and Gallant was, um, I guess he was seen sort of, as a mod- sort of like a moderate in, in terms of, you know, what could be considered moderate in the, in the, in the right wing of Israeli society. But at least he was like a kind of a moderator. And it's important to note that in the background of all this, Israel is dealing with some foreign policy issues. So, you know, one... And domestic. And domestic. (laughs) So if you consider the West Bank a foreign policy issue, which is not, 
uh, one, there's there's the rising violence in the West Bank. So there's increased clashes between uh, settlers and Palestinians. And then there is the Saudi reproachment with Iran. So it's... Yeah, we spoke about Saudi and Iran, uh, you know, coming to terms or at least opening up diplomatic channels again is, you know, it's not what Israel really wanted. They wanted to normalize relationships with Saudi Arabia. They wanted to have an anti-Iran coalition. So, um, you know, there's 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 multiple not only domestic issues that they're dealing with, but also, uh, you know, foreign policy, regional issues that they're that they're that the government is under pressure on. The government's very busy right now. <laughs> yeah. So um, now Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is the national security minister, and he's the leader of Atma Yihadit, which is the Jewish strength party or Jewish power party. It's, it's a very hardcore right-wing party. It has threatened to leave the coalition if this legislation process is frozen. So right now, I'm not actually even sure where the legislation process stands. I think they push it back to Passover and when they're yeah, going to Yeah, to end of April. The end yeah. of April. Um, so uh, if if Atma Yihadit leaves the coalition, it's going to, I mean, it could potentially deprive... Netanyahu's government of a majority in the 120 seat Knesset. So um, that's a situation in a nutshell. The the political right. the political protest, like why people are protesting. And it's not the only uh, uh, political party that's threatening to pull out for reasons related to this particular um, issue. Uh, the the Shasa party as well. Um, yeah. So it, it, essentially, if. You know, if the ruling coalition breaks, um, at least personally, look, uh, you know, Netanyahu can get into some legal troubles. Now, yep. I think the bigger picture on this is, is you know, that there's obviously the Supreme Court judicial issue, but I think this kind of, um, and the reason why I think this will be an evergreen show because it, this this is um, this is highlighting something that we've been talking about for a long time is that there was going to be some type of collision between an eventual collision between the Orthodox community in Israel and then the secular uh, secular community in Israel. And eventually that this was going to come to blows, um, that, that, that there was going to be some type of um, confrontation. And this confrontation is coming in the form of, you know, the Supreme Court issue. Um, right now, there is a massive schism in Israel between the scene the seller and then the religion the Supreme Court is seen as the last bastion of of really the secular Ashkenazi elite who've dominated Israel since its you know since its existence in the 1940s and right now um, you know the cur- the current bureaucratic state, so the institutions that really run the state itself doesn't reflect Israel's demographic reality. And the reality is, is that there's a much higher birth rate among the ultra-Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And the increased immigration 
mainly from you know that you know that really started in 1989 um, that came mostly from former Soviet bloc states they tend to be highly nationalist um, in fact most of the people who move to Israel now just think about it you got to be a pretty nationalist person to want to move to the desert take somebody's home get into confrontations with with local indigenous people with you, your neighbors at that with point. your neighbors you got to be a pretty nationalist person to to desire to do that or even on the flip side i know guys who've gone over to israel to fight in, in the idf so it's like you got to be a pretty extreme person to decide to do that so um it is a society that's becoming more and more right-wing, and we're talking about a society that's already been right-wing, but the paradigm keeps on shifting more right and more right. Now, um, what they're challenging— yeah, I mean, Basically, the, the, the demographics in Israel, sorry, is, is that the younger the citizen is, the more politically right-wing they are. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So the younger—so most countries— younger people tend to be more left-wing in israel it's the opposite younger people are more right-wing and that's uh, just because the birth rates but i think this also belies the fact that there are literally half of the country if you include west bank and gaza are arabs and that's a whole different animal right yeah. uh right now we're just talking about like israel on israel kind of conflict yeah we're we're not we're talking about jews versus jews right now we're not we're not we're, ex, we're excluding the arabs from from this conversation um or at least as part of this, I mean, we're talking about like the essentially the um, the descendants of pre nineteen fifty pre nineteen fifties European uh, secular immigrants. So you know the families of the people who migrated um, either after the Holocaust or after you know after World War Two or prior to or, or in the nineteen twenties or nineteen thirties. Um, you know, the, 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 the descendants of the original uh, people who kind of found the state or the original s settlers who, who created the state institutions who were, you know, Th Theodore Herschel was not a religious Jew at all. You know, he was a secular. I, th I think he may have even been an atheist. Um, you know, maybe, I mean, I'm, he was dealing with a lot of rabbis. So I think the story is, is that he kind of faked his faith, but he was a secular Jew nationalist. Like he didn't give a crap about the religion. Um, what right. he really cared about was the, was the ethnicity and, you know, creating a state to, um, you know, largely kind of create to to uh, why anyone would want to create a state. We, we, we did an episode the other day with our friend Joe Solis Molis, uh, and, you know, we, we, we spoke about how the how why people create nation states and a lot of and one of the big reasons is for, is for survival. So, you know, this nationalization process um, was spearheaded by secular Jews who were uh, neglected from you know, their, their, the countries that they were living in, or in some cases, or in many cases, persecuted. Now, mm -hmm. um, these secular, you know, the, the uh, legacy or the, you know, the, the, the heritage of all the, the 1950s, the you know, egalitarian Jews that came over, um, one of the only institutions they really have left. Um, well, they have a lot of the, the elite institutions still, but that includes the courts. And the problem, though, with the secular left is that they can't win elections. They can't form mm -hmm. governments either. 
there hasn't been a oh, truly nobody can form a government in Israel right now. Yeah, like, nobody can really form a government, unique. but there 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 hasn't been a truly secular left led government in Israel since two thousand one. Yeah. The 2001-2022 uh, government that was basically just like an interim government for the next Net- Netanyahu term was a center-right coalition with one of its co-leaders being a, a protege of, of Netanyahu. And in 2006, the, the, you know, the, the left went into a coalition with a breakaway faction from Likud. So since 2001, Likud mainly... Um, has been the party in power and it's you know primarily been under the control of Bibi Netanyahu. In fact, when you really look at Israeli politics, uh, you know, Likud is is among the few parties in Israel's uh multi-party system that has existed through this entire period, so between 2001 and now. Um so um you know, Likud has finally decided in their reasoning to bring the judicial branch in line with the popular will. And that's what that's basically what all the interviews that, which is kind of fair enough when you think about it, yep. because it's kind of a majoritarian approach to it. It's, it's the democratic approach, the majority rules approach, where, you know, they're, they're basically saying like, hey, you know, the, the Israel is becoming more right wing. Um, we've, we've created coalitions with, um, with, with interesting people, but it also reflects that, you know, the, the way that, the, the, you know, the trends that Israel is going in, and we are um, taking the courts to reflect the popular will. So that's basically right. what the talking point has been, the justification for it. We'll get more into that in a second. Right. Um, well, for now, maybe we can talk a bit more about, like, the Israeli government and, and some of the trends that we're seeing there. Yeah, so the trend for a long time... Um, you know, as mentioned, is, is Israel is becoming more and more right wing. The and again, we're talking about it's becoming more and more right wing, but we're already starting from a point of being really right wing and nationalist. Right, it was already very. It was right. so it's getting even more and more, and it just keeps it keeps on kind of going further and further to the hard hard nationalist right. The, the current government in Israel, in fact, is and you'll read this in any newspaper. It's it's the most right wing government in its entire history, and it also includes the most radical segments of Israeli society. So um, the coalition, and to just to be exact, the co- the coalition members consist of Likud, thirty two seats. There's uh, two Haredi ultra orthodox parties, Shas, and then United Torah Judaism. So Shas has eleven, UTJ has seven seats. And then the Radical Party Alliance, uh, Religious Zionism has 14. And then that consists of uh, two very fringe parties, uh, Atma Yehudit, um, and then small, the smaller party, Noam. And, you know, this coalition really isn't an accident. Since 2019, there was this possibility of, that, of um, you know, there being this right-wing coalition um, and there was always this popular this this um, possibility that I was going to take over the government. And it was, once it and, and the, the 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 outlook was is once they you know got a majority in the Knesset that they would um, try to solidify some type of majoritarian type government. 
Again, this is what we've been talking about for yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, we were yeah. we were talking about this for years, and it's it. I think the most interesting part of it is like, you know, Israel kind of gets a pass on a lot of things, and I think a lot of there's a lot of effort to not really highlight the real hard, crazy right in Israel. But now the it's political kind of, makeup, let's call it. <laughs> yeah, but now there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons for it. I think a lot of it has to do is do with 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 trump um being so unabashedly pro-israel that there was kind of a this is only a small part of it there's many reasons but this is one of the reasons why i think it's kind of in the limelight now is that trump was so pro-israel that there's kind of an anti there's a lot of people in america mainly like american jews who are like all right it's time to kind of show the you know how crazy things are getting there because most American Jews who are following Israel, you know, under, understand these dynamics that are going on, but they still care about the state, or at least Zionist right. Jews. I'm not saying all the Jews care. I think the polling suggests that most Jews are kind of indifferent to the state, but like, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, the people totally. entrenched in politics who have opinions on 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 this are, you know, they by and large sympathize with the state. Now, the result of I mean, the reason for this is that, you know, again, there's there's this um, long-term trend that's been going on for decades of the right wing becoming more and more radicalized, and it's abolishing barriers with right-wing extremist parties. And, mm-hmm. you know, these, these, these right-wing extremist parties, they're becoming, that they were on the, the, the fringe, they're, they're becoming part of the mainstream political spectrum. They're coming within the mainstream political spectrum. Right. And, and that's not unique to Israel. I think that might be happening kind of in a lot of different places, our own country as well. I think but, it's kind of, I don't, I think it's actually unique to Israel. I don't think there's anything you can compare in the United States to what's going on in Israel at all. Um, the, the, the Republicans are pretty basic. Um, I think both. Well, both in comparison, those. but in comparison to Israel, sure. But in comparison to itself, I'd argue that it is getting more fringe i don't know we can discuss that at another time but i think (laughs) the point the point that um it's becoming openly fringy and crazy um and first and foremost again it's because of the demographic developments um like you mentioned earlier israel is 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 a place where the younger someone is the more politically right-wing they are and it's you know due to the birth rates in religious Zionists and ultra orthodox communities, and um, you know according to the got this from the SWP Institute from Berlin, um, overall more than sixty percent of Jewish Israelis today place themselves on the political right. So um, you know there's a pretty overwhelming majority who consider themselves right wing, and now we have these really strange leaders too who, who have taken up key positions in the government um you know one of them is itamar uh ben gavir ben gavir ben gavir yeah um itamar ben gavir who was a member of organizations and parties that even the israeli government considered terrorist groups he's a disciple of the racist radical rabbi Meyer Kahani 
who was, you know, so crazy and, and, um, you know, the, the, even the Israeli government threw him in jail. Um, it, it, just for some context, these are the kind of folks that are like running around saying like death to Arabs and shit. Yeah. Right? So just, that's why we say he's crazy. It's not, it's not an opinion. I, I just think it's no, we're, generally we're saying, crazy. We're, to we're say saying he's like crazy that. because if you just look at, uh, Meyer Kahani's list of books that he wrote, the first book that will pop up is called titled, they must go. Yeah, so you sent that PDF to me. Oh my god! Literally, guys, if if you if you find the PDF online, I started reading it actually just for fun. But it, I don't know. It reads a little bit to me like Mein Kampf, to be very honest. Uh, which is yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, when uh, we say crazy, we're like we're not saying like oh he's kooky and crazy or or insulting the religion. We're saying that they're crazy as and they ad, they they openly advocate for ethnic cleansing. Right, <laughs> like openly yeah. ad, ad, advocate for the the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and all sorts of other crazy things, like um, like just extremely hardcore. Like use they use phrases like "final solution" and stuff to the Palestinian problem, like you know things that you're that you're not supposed to openly say. Um, and you know, uh, Meyer Kahini is like you know one of the spiritual success. Uh, uh, the spiritual mentors or actually direct mentors to some of these, some of these leaders right now on, on the Israeli hard right. Um, he was, he was assassinated at back in 1990 by the, you know, the group that eventually formed Al Qaeda. But I think we, this is something actually we're going to talk in a different episode. Um, but um, Ben Gavir um, is the internal security minister um, there's another figure named uh, Smotrich, who's the the minister of finance, who's also real, uh, you know, he's he's a real hardcore. And then the the right wing coalition in Israel, it looks at the courts as a barrier to advancing its agenda. So these these right wing politicians, they've they've often used the language of bulldozing the Supreme Court. Like bulldozing the Supreme, like we're going to bulldoze the Supreme Court. What? Well, so, Henry, why, why do they want to like bulldoze the courts? Why? Why do you think? What's What's the going narrative on on this particular uh, subject? I think the main reason they want to, you know, surpass the Supreme Court or or uh, take control of it is because they want to, you know, pass numerous racist legislations and you know the thing is though about it which which makes it really weird is that it it would already add to the already long list of laws passed by previous israeli governments that that already openly discriminate against palestinians and and, and other non-jewish groups Mm -hmm. um you know already most of these these laws were were enacted without any type of judicial oversight However, sometimes the high court intervenes and it will say, hey, you guys have gone too far. You have to rewrite these laws like we can't openly advocate for this. So, um, you know, it slows down the process by which the Knesset can can actually pass discriminatory laws. But there's a lot of discriminatory laws that already have been passed. You know, I, I think... In in like at least the orth, the ultra orthodox groups, I think their their goal is really to to transform the Israeli government from 
an ethno state because you know, that's what it is. It's an it's an ethno state. You know, you're you're born Jewish. You're you're you know you're considered Jewish. Um, don't have to practice or go or 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 worship um, or celebrate the holidays. You you know it, that's it's it's by blood. It's more of like kind of a blood and soil type of type of ideology, like something that mm-hmm. came out of. Uh, you know, the early 20th century Europe or, or, you know, late, late 20, early 20th century, late 19th century Europe is, is more of that type of ideology. I mean, that's where, where it began in, in the late 19th century. And it, and it kind of copied the nationalist movements that were developing in, in uh, central Europe at the time, mainly Germany. And it is turning that is flipping that from an ethnic state to a theocratic state which would actually want to use, you know, have laws based on the Torah and the Talmud. Right. So I think that's the primary goal. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I don't even think that's an educated guess, Henry. I literally think aspects of those farther right-wing you know, parties literally openly say that. So yeah, it's not a guess. I, I'm I'm just saying that's you know those are there, there's there's multiple motivations, but you know I would say if I was going to say there's the three the three main ones is is you know a that you know the shamelessness of of, of Netanyahu and and his really his just what he'll do anything to stay in power type <laughs> mentality, which to the right. point where he's so crass where you, you kind of respect him. Um, yeah, you're just like a little bit. You, you kind of respect it to some degree like he just doesn't go away we did a mock video of him when he finally uh um lost his premiership 
two years ago, and we like yeah. had the best clips of of Netanyahu. And we gave um, him a send off, a send off, <laughs> and then you know he has a last laugh because he's back. Uh, within <laughs> yeah. a, within eighteen months, he's back. Yeah. from that episode. So it is um, the most resilient guy. He, he he's an extremely. The, the thing I'll say about Benjamin Netanyahu is like he is incredibly smart. You know, he's yeah. Like if you just look at his pedigree, like you know, he went to MIT. He was a special forces. I mean, he was a special forces guy in Israel in the IDF. He went to MIT. He became, um, you know, one of the top guys at Boston Consult, uh, Boston Consulting Group. Um, you know, his his career is like extremely prestigious. Like he's one of the most clever and intelligent politicians in the world. He's also incredibly articulate. For you know, I was watching uh, a recent interview with him and Piers Morgan that came out like earlier this week, and I just forgot that you know. If you if you can ignore some of the content that he says, it's kind of easy to believe him. You know, he's he's a really good speaker in both Hebrew and English. Yeah, I mean, he was he was basically raised in America. He spent right. I mean, a lot of his younger years in in the U.S. He he's he has these rare talents. Um, most of the Israeli pop politicians are kind of like lamos you know like they're they're kind of mm-hmm. lamos that come out of the military most politicians or are like yeah. That. yeah yeah most most politicians are like that to, to be completely fair but like the ones that kind of spring up are, are kind of are, are kind of lamos you know you'll usually spring out of the military and they'll have like these short stints um but benjamin and yahoo's is he has you know a special talent i think to kind of tickle the, the populace and and kind of earn their trust um, and you can kind of see it. I mean, I used to like, you know, before I learned more about him, I, I used to be like, oh, yeah, Benjamin Netanyahu is a pretty good guy. I'm glad we're supporting that guy's state. Like, yeah. he, he, you know, he's he also has a really good way with with dealing with Americans. Like, he's he's mm-hmm. great with with, um, you know, getting support from American presidents. Um, I think now since they went all in on Trump. That they're getting some, they're getting cold shoulders from the Biden administration, where the Biden administration is going to be more likely to not play ball uh, with certain things. Um, no, they, I think they much rather see them go, but um, you know they'll 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 try to place restraints on on things that they do foreign policy wise. So you know they're also you know really not. I guess we'll see what happens with this, with with Iran. That, sure. That'll be too much to get into today, but you know what I mean. There, there there's definitely yeah. a different attitude towards Israel uh, now than there was a couple of years ago during the Trump the Trump team. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. Netanyahu had a essentially like I don't want it wasn't a blood relative, but like a direct, um, a very direct relationship with the Kushners. Um, they they were family. Stay close, on the top bunk bed. Yeah, in close, Jared's bedroom. I mean, they were close. They were <laughs> close family friends. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's there's that there's uh that going on. But why don't we why don't we actually jump into the bill itself? Sure. Uh, and heads up, uh, I actually I did go ahead and find the bill and read it, uh, but it was in Hebrew, so I had to get it translated by ChatGPT. Thank God for that because. Google Translate has a character limit, and there was no way in hell I was going to copy and paste little tiny snippets of it to get it going. So 
if there's some, I don't know, linguistic nuances that are missing, I apologize in advance. I don't speak Hebrew, and I could not find an officially translated document from the Israeli government. So we're going to go on that. So now that that is out of the way, I think maybe we can start with some concepts about the bill first. You know, the stuff that you've likely heard uh, or read in the media over the last couple of weeks. And then we can kind of take a look at what the bill actually says and see how that narrative that you hear in the media stacks up against the actual content of the bill. I really like doing this one, again, especially as a follow-up to our last episode on Georgia, because you know I think what, what's really important to take away from these, and, and I invite you to formulate your own opinions, we're going to have ours, um, but it's, I think it's super important to actually go in and look at the source material and see what it actually says, because... A lot of the times what you'll see with a lot of these subjects in far-flung places in, in, you know, on the planet is that we get the, we get the spark notes. We get the, the chat GPT version of, of, the, uh, of the issue, and it misses a lot of the details. And depending on who's writing that, um, that summary, it could swing either ways, and, and you can make really strong arguments for both sides. That's why I think it's so important to actually look at it. All right, enough of that. So... I wrote the damn bill. <laughs> I wrote the damn bill. Um, what bill? All right, so the basics of the bill. So there's proposed changes to the Israeli legal system, and it includes several key areas. So this, this is like the SparkNotes version that you'll hear. Uh, some of the key areas are how the judges are selected is up for review, the process of the judicial review. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, the ability for the Knesset to override court decisions the role of legal advisors in government, again, we'll talk about that later, and the concept of, quote, reasonableness in legal decisions. So these changes overall uh, would, uh, everything I've read, and I've tried my best even finding opposing opinions, even the bill itself had some arguments for in favor of this uh, analysis, is that it gives more power to the government in things like selecting judges, limiting the court's abilities to review laws and decisions, and allowing ministers to decide whether or not to follow legal advice. And there's a lot of controversy around this reform with some people supporting it and other people claiming that it just it's giving the government too much power. I'm not going to cover all of these basics because we just straight up don't have time, but I will cover some of the more hot-button ones. The first one I want to talk about is how judges are selected so this is one of the big talking points for proponents of the bill is that the courts in Israel, unlike any other Western democracies, they, quote, self-select their members. And according to the proponents, that gives them way too much power. Okay, so here's a direct quote from the bill. This approach embodies an infringement on the democratic process as the public's will to implement its objectives through its elected officials is frustrated by jurists whom the public did not elect. Direct quote. And here they're making the argument that, you know, these unelected judges are basically calling all the shots and that goes against what the people want. It's a, I think it's a fair argument to make. So let's, let's take a look at how the courts actually select their members. And this is coming directly from the Israeli embassy website, embassies.gov.il. Um, so they write, judges are selected by the Judicial Selection Committee, which is composed of nine members. 
the minister of justice, which is the chair, another cabinet minister, the president of the Supreme Court, which is like the chief justice, um, two other justices of the Supreme Court, two members of the Knesset, and two representatives of the Israeli Bar Association. All three branches of the government, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, and the legal profession are represented in the committee. The majority of the members of the committee are professional lawyers, three Supreme Court justices, and two representatives of the legal profession. A candidate may be proposed by the chairman, the president of the Supreme Court, or any of the three members of the committee. A majority vote of the members of the committee is required to appoint a candidate. Okay, so let's unpack that for a bit. Can I just add this one selection? More, can I add one more piece of important uh, yeah. context? Go ahead. Is that Israel does not have a constitution to fall back on. No, so no, it's like the, so the their court system has extra power because there's not some document that they can they can um, that they can reference on the specific. They, yeah, laws. they can reference Correct. on the specifics. So it's based off like you know, like basically common sense type law you know right so mm -hmm. um that's the that's the um that's specifically in, in the legalness it's the concept of reasonableness reasonableness legal yeah that's decisions. the word that's the word that's a, sense, that's a legal term for them reasonableness right uh you can have whatever opinion you want on that we'll get into the, the debates for and after um for and against after okay so unpacking that quote that i just gave the selection committee is not a self-selection not not even a little bit so it includes members of the Supreme Court, obviously, uh, as well as members of the Bar Association. So those guys, for real, aren't elected. So there is some truth to the fact that like there are people that aren't elected that are picking you know, judges. But it also includes, and this is so important, the Minister of Justice, who is literally the chair of this committee, and another cabinet member, as well as two members of the Knesset, and those people are all elected quote unquote so by my count that's a four to five elected versus not elective committee so it's a little bit leaning towards the non-elected there but to say that it's a self appointment is just not accurate if you count cabinet members as quote elected by proxy because they were appointed by the elected prime minister that makes four elected representatives and that five majority the the people who are unelected they're all law professionals so like they kind of belong there, right? I mean, wouldn't you want lawyers? It sounds like the deep state to me, honestly. <laughs> That's the argument, though. So it's you kind of hear this. You, you hear you you've been hearing this um, rhetoric for the past couple of years that uh, Netanyahu and Likud was going to start taking on the Israeli deep state. And that's what they're talking about, you know, the unelected lawyers and bureaucrats that have no accountability this, like, to the public. Hebrew Q? <laughs> no, I mean that's that, that's fair. That's honestly a hundred percent a fair. Like I think that's a fair for sure. I'm criticism. just joking. Like from there, from like the from the U, from the U.S. Like it's you know when you say the deep state, it, it it obviously means the the unelected people who live in government who work in who work in government who don't have any mm -hmm. type of accountability besides right. You know, if they fuck up enough, maybe they'll be put into another department or something. I don't know how government works, but you know what? You know what they I go mean. to government timeout. You right? go to government mm -hmm. timeout. So we're, we're we're talking about that, and and who who, um, and I guess it goes back to like the kind of the class. 
essentially caste system. And, you know, I'm not Israeli. I've never been to Israeli. I've never, I've never been to Israel. Um, I've only read books. And I think a good book to read on this is um, the book Goliath by Max Blumenthal, which which covers a lot of this. Um, you know, there's kind of like a caste system, at least from my perception, in Israel with, with the Ashkenazis on top. And then, you know, below them, there's, there you know, you have Sephardic, Jews and you know the Soviet Jews who are kind of on the lower rung but you know they tend to be more nationalist and religious um it's kind of like that that collision that's taking place and um what their complaint is is you know the more right-wing end of it is like the you know the, the Ashkenazi elite are really just the bringing elite. they're they're, mm-hmm. they're they're yeah the the secular elite are really just bringing in their own you know they're they're okay. going to appoint but and bring in their own their own. People. I, I see I see that I see the argument, but it's undone by the reality. The reality is that this is not self selection. Self selection would be literally nobody in the government, nobody that's elected has any say in this, and only the judges have the ability to pick their own. That if that was the case, then I'd be like, yeah, makes sense. I understand that that fallback, but it's not. It's a committee of every branch of government. And it also includes people who are relevant to this type of position, the Bar Association. What it isn't, it, it isn't an, a political appointment either. And I think that that might be the sticking point here, right? Because the folks, like you mentioned, on the lower rung of the caste system, they feel like they want more representation here. And rather than you know, having them their representation come through the existing process in Israel for selection— They'd rather just appoint them politically. And I don't necessarily know that that's a good idea either. What's worse? Right? Because what's, the question is... The question is, is indeed what's worse. What's, right? what's and I don't worse? think we're going to... We're not going to answer that because neither of us are... <laughs> it's, no, but it's the age-old question that we talk about with every, with every government. What's right. worse, the oligarchy or democracy? Because the well, oligarchy is what we have now, you know what I mean? Like where we have. Kind I don't. Of like, I don't like that characterization because because I, I and here I'm going to assume that you you're saying the oligarchy are the judges. No, when I'm saying I don't when I say oligarchy, I don't mean it in like the way that most people use it. What, okay. Most people use it as in just a billionaire. Like I don't mean it. At, like when I say when I use the word oligarch, in monarch, I don't use those terms in the in the way that like the common people say it i use it in like the greek sense where oligarchy means rule by a few and monarch means Mm -hmm. rule by one and then democracy means rule by everyone you know like there's so i that's where i use it where it's there's the institutional class that managerial class that's how i i use oligarchy yeah i i hear you and that that makes a lot of sense and thank you for clearing that up but but in this particular thing on the selection of judges we have two sides we have oligarchs and monarchs not oligarchs and democracies, because the the folks who are claiming that they want this to be a democracy are actually proponents of one person, the prime minister and his cabinet, appointing specific people to this court. So one rule rather than few rule. It's not they're not saying, hey, we should all hold elections for all of these judges and everybody has to vote on them. That would be democracy. Right now, we're there, the, the argument is between should the, the executive branch do it or should the 
judicial branch do it. Another the judicial branch plus the little committee, you know. Another age old another age old argument. What's what's better, rule by a few, rule by a few, or, or rule by one, or by or rule by one, which most like you know, which is like the traditional corporate structure, right? And I I just wanted to be very clear about that because I hear you on the argument. Like, why should these unelected people, you know, get all the power? That doesn't make sense in a democracy. That's the argument that you're going to hear from the proponents of the bill. But when you actually look at it. That's not what's being that's not what's being offered here. If 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 this was truly a, a judicial reform that would push towards democracy, in my opinion, they would say, hey, we gotta vote. You have to have to have a whole national vote on new members of the Supreme Court, as an example. That would be a democracy. But that's not that's not what's what's up for debate here. It's does the does the judicial branch choose them or does the committee who is a majority of the judicial branch get to choose them. That's it. I'm not offering an, well, I have offered my opinion, but at the end of the day, that those are your two options for this particular argument. I don't think, I, I don't think either of them are good. So that's, that's my two cents. Anyway, here's some more fun facts that I learned about the courts in Israel. <laughs> um, to be in the Supreme Court, you have to be barred and you have to serve a legal function in the government or be a law teacher. So in other words, you have to be a law professional. You also need to do four years in the judicial branch or six years of law experience if you want to be in the magistrate's court or 10 years if you want to be in the Supreme Court. And this is a permanent position, a permanent appointment in the Supreme Court, but it has an expiration date when you turn 70 years old. So turn 70 and you're out. And other than that, you can't get kicked out Unless the selection committee, remember that group of nine people that's mostly the judicial branch, or the court of discipline boot you out for doing something bad. I think what's interesting about that is that none of this shit applies in the U.S., and I kind of like it. I like most of it. Uh, so, for example, in the U.S., you don't actually technically need to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court. You ought to be. <laughs> and there's never been a case where... Um, where someone like the president has has offered a non-lawyer to be in the Supreme Court. But technically speaking, you don't have to be, which is really interesting. And technically speaking, there's no like, you have to have a certain amount of like experience. Like this, If you looked at the CV for Supreme Court, it's not going to be like, were you a lawyer for some number of years? <laughs> you know? Um, and I also personally like the, uh, the, when you turn 70, you get booted. But that's my opinion. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's talk about something else. Moving on to a new topic. Um, there's a lot of debate um, about the role of legal advisors in the government. So specifically, there's a lot of debate from proponents of this bill around the role of the attorney general in Israel and his ability to weigh on pretty much anything that the government does. And the idea is that if the attorney general says something, he says, hey, that's illegal. You can't do that. That legal opinion that he gives is binding in the government. And politicians generally don't like that. And if you just hear it that way, probably a lot of people don't like that. 
Um, so here's some more, like a, another quote from the embassy website, so directly from the Israeli government. It says, as the government's legal advisor, the attorney general counsels the government, the ministers, the government ministries, local authorities, and other pu public bodies, such as the post office and the national telephone company. He provides counsel directly or indirectly through government legal service, namely by legal advisors of all government ministries. The attorney general is also responsible for issuing guidelines to the government on the interpretation of law and appropriate legal procedures. And here's the important part. The legal opinions of the attorney general are accepted as authoritative interpretations of the law and are therefore binding on all government authorities. This provides for two important internal checks on the lawful workings of the government. First, because of the authoritative quality of the attorney general's decisions and the respect in which his office is held, government officials commonly seek his advice and consent before making policy decisions, which may later be found to be contrary to the law. Furthermore, if an authority acts against his legal counsel, attorney general may decide not to defend that body in court. Okay, that, that was some tough stuff, but what proponents of this bill say about this particular issue of the role of the legal advisement and, and the attorney general is actually true for this one. By law, whatever the attorney general or more broadly the judicial branch says goes. Now, I want to hold off on the debate on this one for a bit. I've got some more stuff on this later. Um, so let's just maybe focus on what the bill says about this issue, uh, particular issue, and then we can go on from there. So the bill says, the attorney general's power in the field of advice and representation in public law has never been anchored in legislation, despite their significant impact on the Israeli system of government, even among the Supreme Court justices themselves, there is no uniformity regarding the legal status of the issue. Finally, the Knesset has never held a debate on the appropriate law in this matter. So here, uh, they say that the Attorney General's authority, it's not a law, it's just a, like a legal precedent, right? There's no law or constitution, because they don't have one, that says you got to follow what the Attorney General says. So I don't know about this one, so I'm going to sit out of that. Maybe I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but I mean, they wrote it on their website that you have to follow their opinions. I don't know if that's law or like whatever, but you know, anyway. So the bill later goes on to say, and this one's interesting. In countries like Britain, the United States, Canada, and Germany, the attorney general or the person holding an equivalent position is a political role similar to a minister, and in some countries, an actual minister. In addition, they do not have the power to obligate the government with their positions. The government can act contrary to their position. The government has the authority to dictate the position that they will present on behalf in court, and they are prohibited from initiating opinions without the government's request. And then they go into this, like, it's formatted weird on our notes here, Henry, but follow me on this one. They made this little table uh, of... And they say, for your convenience, the attached table describes the position of the attorney general in Israel, its exceptional characteristics compared to prominent Western countries. So it's going to say a couple questions and do a little check marks. And they're comparing the United States, UK, Canada, Germany, and Israel. 
and I'm going to try my best to like describe this with words because it is a table. So the first question is, is the legal advisor to the government a political role? And it is checked off for every country except for Israel. Can the president or government act against the advisor's position? Again, checked off for everybody except for Israel. Can the president or government dictate the position to be presented on their behalf in court? Now, in this one, the U.S. is X'd out and everyone's checked off. Is the advisor prevented from responding to non-governmental entities' requests? Everybody's checked off except for Israel. Is the attorney general prevented from initiating an opinion without the government's request? And then again, everyone's checked off except for Israel. So first we're making the argument here that all of these other Western democracies have an attorney general or like an equivalent position and that all of those people are a political appointee. And this person is supposed to be doing the bidding of the government and who the government you know, the, the, the government themselves, they can ignore this person if they want to. And this isn't the case in Israel. So the argument goes in the bill that Israel should also have a kind of like, you know, beta AG. <laughs> so that's what they want to do. They want to make the attorney general a political appointee that just like the US, just like Canada, just like the UK, just like Germany, where, you know, the attorney general is the prime minister's bitch in this case. That's what they want. So that's what, so that's what the, um, government wants to, to reform. That's what, that's what the peep, the proponents of this bill want. They're saying, Hey, other democracies do it this way. We should also do it this way. Yeah. And in fairness, it's kind of a strong argument, you know, it maybe. I personally disagree, and I actually think that, you know, it's probably not a good thing that the rest of these Western democracies operate that way. That's my opinion, but I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know if I'm correct or not on that. Because what, what we have now in Israel is like basically like a, a um, you know, a group of philosopher kings who are kind of. unmolested from, from government action. Yeah... Not completely, but... The sentiment is there, but it's not totally accurate. It, they, they're basically weighing in on things that they think... You mentioned it early on. They're like, for the most part, the courts kind of let the government do whatever they want. Every now and again, they'll be like, hey, 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 you went a bit far on that one. You need to pull that shit back, right? And that's the, that's the reality. But, you know, that's, that's not inscribed in law. So, I mean, technically speaking... Or legally speaking, the attorney general could just, maybe he doesn't like BB one day. BB called him a bitch. And he was like, all right, fuck you, BB. I'm going to block literally everything you do from now on and say everything BB does is illegal. <laughs> you know, D technically, the attorney general has that power, right? So, you know, there there is an argument to be made there about maybe curtailing that a little. But I think the opposite here, again, it's not like, uh, 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 an argument for democracy and an argument for you know um, oligarchy. It's an argument for monarchy and uh, uh, oligarchy, right? Where it, there, we're not saying that the people have to vote on the attorney general, that the people have to you know uh, be cool with this person. It's that one person, the prime minister, gets to pick that person, and that person is that is the prime minister's bitch. So 
We're not offering a more democratic option here. And the fact that they're comparing it to other Western democracies is helpful for lay people, but it's not helpful in the technical sense. Because technically speaking, what's the point of laws if the government could just ignore them? So there's that. We'll get we'll get into some specific examples on that later, but let's talk about this last thing, and it's kind of related. It's the legal reviews. This is the stuff that the attorney general will look at and be like, hey, hey, you can't do that, right? So this is the last concept we're going to cover on this, and then we'll we'll get into some of the arguments. Um, and it's the the judicial branch's power to conduct these legal reviews. So proponents of the of the bill, they're arguing that the courts have unlimited power to weigh in on anything they want. And since those opinions are legally binding, it gives the courts way too much power. So here's from the bill. These powers granted the legal advisor the power to intervene in almost any issue, even in matters that are not unambiguous and clear in legal terms. This part is actually 100% true. The courts can totally weigh in on basically anything that the government does as a measure of checks and balances. And that's coming directly from, I'm paraphrasing directly from that last quote that I read from their website. So... Let's, let's just go through the bullet points of the proposed changes in this bill, and then we can kind of shift and talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, the, the arguments for and against. So, A, the government is authorized to determine its legal position through 32A. I don't know what that is. It's referencing something I don't understand. B, the prime minister and each government minister are authorized to determine their ministry's or administrative authorities' position in legal matters, generally for a specific case. So here they're saying the prime minister can basically come up with their own legal position for anything that they want. Legal ad- C, legal advice given to the government shall not be binding and shall not change the government's legal status. Okay, so again, any legal advice that's given to the government doesn't matter. It, it could, The government can ignore it if they want or if they so choose. D, legal advice given to the prime minister and each government minister shall not be binding and shall not change their legal status. So this is the same as the last one, except very specifically for the prime minister and its, you know, and his cabinet. You can't tell BB shit. Um, the government, this is E, the government, prime minister, and each government minister are entitled to reject legal advice and act contrary to it. So this is very specifically saying the government, the prime minister, and all the cabinet, they can totally just ignore legal advice and actually go against that legal advice. F, the government, prime minister, and each minister in their ministry's domain shall determine the position to be presented on their behalf or on the behalf of the administrative authority under the responsibility before anyone who has judicial authority according to the law. Um, this one is uh, hard for me to determine, so I'm just going to skip it. Uh, the government... And this is the last one. G, the government, prime minister, and each minister in their ministry's domain are entitled to decide according to their discretion that their position or the position of an administrative authority under their responsibility in a particular process shall be presented before anyone who has judicial authority according to the law by a representative of their choice, including representatives representation by a private attorney. Okay, so that one's saying the only times that that anything should be up for legal review is when the government or the prime minister say so. And when that does occur, the government can choose 
if they want the attorney general to to represent them in this case or if they want a private attorney to represent them in this case. So I'm just going to leave that at, at that for now. I know there was a lot to kind of take in. Again, let's save some of the debate for the you know, for that, for later, I have some stuff to review. But for right now, what I will say is that politicians in Israel that are promoting this bill feel like the courts are cock blocking them from legislating. And therefore, the types of rules that they're putting in place give them a lot more power to ignore them. I think that's the overarching theme for all of these proposed points. So any questions? So what I'm curious to hear is what exact, I mean, what have the Israeli courts actually blocked to instigate this change or this proposed change? Honestly, I don't really know. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. And part of the reason why I don't know is because proponents of this bill, BB himself included, are doing a really shit job at telling us specifically what exactly are they so worried about that the courts will do if, if not for this bill to come and save them. And more importantly, I think a stronger argument that they could be making would be to point out very specifically, what has the court done already and highlight that, you know, why, as, as a reason for why we need this bill. And, and spoiler alert, I don't actually think they can make a strong argument even when they do get down to the specifics, because again, the devil's in the details. Here's an example. I mentioned that I was watching that, um, that interview with uh, BB on Piers Morgan the other day. This is a quote from that, um, and this is Bibi speaking here. Everybody understands that in Israel, over the last 20 years, that balance has been taken off the rails because the judiciary became not independent. It's always been independent, will always be independent. It became all-powerful, so it can nullify any decision of the parliament, the Knesset, and it could end a legal decision, a legal law. That's fine, but they say it's not a, quote, reasonable law. And that doesn't exist anywhere in democracy. Such powers, um, he's speaking kind of like in run-on sentences here. Uh, Then he says, uh, it can nullify the decision of the government and often has. It can nullify any appointment of the government. It can intervene in military matters. It can intervene in our battle against terrorists. It can intervene in taking gas out of the sea. That cost us billions of dollars, billions of dollars. 
I finally got it out. All these things are unacceptable, but it's cool. We'll hang on. It's called checks and balances. There is no checks and balances. Direct quote from BB. <laughs> um, so what do we get at? What do we get at? Uh, from my perspective, and I don't know if you're hearing the same thing here, Henry. All I'm hearing is like platitudes, right? So reasonable-ish arguments whose implications are scary sounding on the face of it. And, and, and when they make these arguments, it feels like a good idea. But also these, these arguments are totally empty and they lack like specificity to where it starts to sound to me like it's a talking point and it's, it's intentionally crafted to trick me into buying some bullshit. So here's one of these examples. And BB says shit like the courts block government appointments. Okay, cool. I think that's a start. But you'll notice that he doesn't give any specifics, right? Like, who did they block? Why did they block it? Uh, what was the official court opinion? Why do you disagree with the court blocking the appointment, you know? So, of course, I take this and I'm like, all right, BB, game on. And I do some Googling to try and find out what is BB talking about here? And I found something interesting. So there's this guy. Uh, Aria Derry, and I don't think we've talked about him yet in this episode. This guy's an ultra-Orthodox member of the Shas party, and he is currently serving half of a term as the Minister of Health and Interior Affairs. And recently he was set to become the Finance Minister in the second half of his term. And he's also right now the Deputy Prime Minister. So a couple uh, months back, January 18th of this year, 2023, the Supreme Court's actually blocked his appointment by BB. So, is this an example of what BB was talking about? I mean, I obviously I don't know because he didn't specify, but it, I think it sounds like it could be. And so, with that being said, I, I think assuming that we have a good example of who they blocked, I think it's also important to understand now why did they block him. So the court ruled that Derry is disqualified from serving as a minister because he was convicted last year for tax offenses and he was placed on probation as part of a plea deal. So that's pretty interesting. Here's the statement uh, that the court gave. Um, Most of the judges on the panel decided that this appointment suffers from extreme unreasonability and therefore the prime minister must remove Derry from his position. You hear that word there, that unreasonability? That's their... Quasi legal term. Unreasonability. Right. It's not reasonable to appoint him as the um as the uh, uh finance minister because he's he was convicted of tax offenses and he's on probation. Right? That's well, what they're I think, saying. I, I think that is unreasonable to do that. Yeah, totally, right? I mean you so to be fair, you could argue that the Israeli court shouldn't have a say in a cabinet appointment, right? I mean that's certainly not the case in you know the U.S. right. Our 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 uh, appointments clause of the U.S. Constitution, Article Two, Section Two, Clause Two, you know that says basically that the U.S. court, the Supreme Court, can't block a, a president's cabinet appointment unless it specifically violates some kind of law, which it doesn't. Like even if you know Biden or Trump or anyone that you want is any president that you want, even if they pick the shittiest possible person. 
You could pick George Santos to be the finance minister in the United States, right? S- still totally cool. Totally He's legal. Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> well, that's that's still totally cool and totally legal, and that's a hundred percent within the U.S. president's power to do so. On the other hand, though, we're not talking about the U.S. And Israel doesn't even have a constitution to begin with. So what Israel does have is a high court who does have the power to block cabinet appointments based on this reasonability test, right? Now, how Israelis feel about this is part of the debate, right? So some people are going to be like, that's fucked up. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. And then some people are going to be like, yeah, that's, you know, he shouldn't have been the finance minister. My personal opinion, and I'll offer it here, I don't know all of the details about Dare's case, but I wouldn't want a guy that was convicted on tax offenses to serve in any government position, but least of all the finance minister. And it is, it's kind of hypocritical, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, Henry? He's the dude who makes the laws on how I have to pay taxes and he's the one skirting them? Fuck that nonsense. Unless he's like coming into stop taxes in general <laughs> if he's like one of those uh evangelists like i didn't pay my taxes because i hate the man and now i'm gonna get into power and we're gonna end the income tax i, I mean would, i would support that maybe <laughs> <laughs> i would support that but i guess you know it's i feel like tax evasion is 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 a very political thing though especially at like what i think people well i guess there are people who just blatantly do most of the people who actually get in trouble for tax evasion or poor you know it's kind of sad because because well, they're the only ones that can afford that can't afford the lawyers to get out of it or no it's they can't afford the well that and then they can't afford the the uh, accountants a, to cover the it accountants up. to cover it up and yeah and to, you know find all these loopholes mm-hmm. okay so finally on this dare issue right my question is why does bb disagree with the court's decision he doesn't tell us right and I can offer you an educated guess, and that is that Bibi needs him. He needs to appoint him into this cabinet. Remember, this is the this is the Shas party leader. Now the party isn't super huge; it's a medium-sized party. But not giving him a cushy role in the government means potentially losing Netanyahu's sixty-four seat majority by the eleven seats that this guy represents. In layman's terms, Bibi would lose the majority because there's only 120 members of the of the Knesset. So they would drop below 61 votes if this guy pulls his party from the coalition. And I think after five failed elections over the last four years, that's just not politically viable. Right? It would probably result in a new election, and who knows how that turns out. Yeah, it's like the shame, the shamelessness, the, the the shamelessness in all of it is just kind of hilarious to watch. You know, it's it's so it's so obvious. But yep. uh, what are some of the other examples that BB offered of the court? Like he said something about the courts blocking the military. I don't right. think I've read anything about the courts blocking any type of military <laughs> yeah. whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I tried looking into it too. Um, and, uh, you know, just trying to see like, when did the courts block a military operation or, you know, he specifically said it's operations against terrorism, which that gave me such hard eye rolls. Um, but whatever. And this, this part was actually legitimately harder to find evidence for. And 
I like you don't have to trust me on it. Like Google it yourself. It's it's legitimately hard. I'm not saying that the evidence doesn't exist. I'm just saying I really wish that people like BB, these proponents, would throw us a bone and just like tell me what specific situation, or maybe two, to like help us understand why. Why are why are we pushing for these judicial reforms? Why when was this situation when they blocked the military? Now, what I did find is most mostly most of what I found when I was Googling across a lot of different types of websites, including left-leaning and right-leaning Israeli publications, was centered around like how the Israeli court system just kind of let the military do whatever they want, especially and, and especially against you know operations against Palestinians in places like the West Bank and Gaza. For the most part, everything I found was just like, yep, court said it's cool to uh, drop a bomb on this residential building. So there was a lot of that. Now, I got to like page three of a Google search, and I found a translation of a court case that I guess is kind of an example of the court blocking a military operation, but it's like super insignificant. But I didn't find anything else, so we're going to talk about that. So want to bomb AP, uh, the AP office in Gaza? That's fine. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, level it. So th- this um, this case was called Mara Abe versus the Prime Minister of Israel, and this is from September 2005. And the short version of it is that some Israeli commander decided to put up a fence in the occupied West Bank, like right through a Palestinian v- village, for quote security reasons. This is this happens all the fucking time, right? Um, and the court's opinion at the time was that this particular fence was illegal and that. You know, they had to dismantle it. And they argued that the military commander was not authorized to put up that fence. And they relied heavily on this, the advisory opinion of the International Court in The Hague. They also argued um, that the reason why this fence um, was put up in the first place was more about annexing land than for security purposes. And that the, the specific path that they laid the fence was, a, quote, disproportionate measure for security reasons, uh, because basically it landlocked some of the Palestinians in that community from the rest of their community. Like it, it isolated them. This happens all the time. And this is the one situation where the court actually was like, nah, you can't do that. And so what's interesting about this is that this wasn't a hard block on putting up the fence either. They didn't say you can never build a fence. What they did say was, they can, you can find a different path for the fence that doesn't totally fuck over the Palestinians. That's what they told them. And that's what they did. So like, this is kind of an insignificant example. Um, but I think the fact that it's kind of hard to find better examples is itself kind of telling. Like I honestly tried really hard to find these. I mean, I mean the the Israeli West Bank barrier actually annexes territory in the West Bank. Exactly. Right? Like it's a fence, it's a giant wall that goes mm-hmm. over. I mean, the wall annexes territory. It's like if we build our border wall thirty miles into Mexico. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's that's cool by the courts, but this random little fence thing. Yeah. That one wasn't cool, and they stepped in on that and. I don't know, maybe BB's pissed off about that. <laughs> maybe this is what he's talking about. I doubt it. This is so insignificant. And it's from 2005. But if I, I know this BB... is such a minor thing that we're talking about right, right now. And there was there at this time in 2005, there was actually a little bit of pressure from the Bush from Bush um 
to stop doing this, to to stop with as much craziness with the settlements. Um, right. So I don't know if that stems from that or, or international pressure or not, but this is like such a minor case that we're talking about. We're going back to 2005 right? to find an example of of the court's Maybe there's some other examples as well, but like maybe they're very there. There seems to be few. I mean, we're talking about you know a guy from Brooklyn moved to this woman's house while she was in it and just lived in the house, and then like slowly annexed the house over, over a me, period man. of like a year. <laughs> What's that? You're triggering me, man. That happened to me. <laughs> I mean, not and. Not in West Bank. It didn't happen. <laughs> no, no, no. I know. No, this, this happened in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was uh, this guy came and he like slowly kind of annexed the house. Like he's like, well, I have the legal right to be in your living room. And then it's like, well, I have the legal right to, you know, take the, le- the legal, the living room any upstairs. And then eventually he's like, I got the papers. You're out. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was kind of this. Uh, really crazy story, and the guy was, you know, this guy from Brooklyn, um, right? It and um, there's like a video of the lady sh- whose house it is. She's like, and she's calling him by his name. I think I forget his name, but he's like, I th- let's just say it's Jacob. She's like, Jacob, this is my house. What are you doing? He's like, I have the right to take this house. Like, the, I have the legal documents. Right. <laughs> and it's just some. It was just some crazy video. So that stuff's allowed, right? And um, it's um, you know, this minor thing. So right. I don't know. Again, it just sounds like, uh, you know, in, in BB's case, it's it's a uh, it's a power grab. But again, like going back to you know the original point, it's more or less like just knocking, you know, just t- taking taking complete control of the government. <laughs> right. I mean, personally, if if I were BB. Right. And I had a genuine example of how the court blocked an important military operation for no good reason. I'd be talking about that shit nonstop to like literally every reporter I could. And you just don't hear that at all. And instead, what we hear from from BB and other proponents on the issue is just super vague. And and it they make it seem like a terrorist with a rocket launcher was running around Tel Aviv blowing shit up. And the court was just like, no, military, you can't actually do anything about that. That's illegal. Right? That That's the way that they make it sound like. Like, oh, the courts are fucking allowing terrorists to run around Tel Aviv, right? I mean, if that was the case, wouldn't you want to talk about a specific case of that happening, right? Anyway, last thing on these empty examples that BB gave us, and this one's kind of interesting. So he spoke super enthusiastically on that in that... Um, interview with Piers Morgan uh, about the courts, quote, intervening and taking the gas out of the sea. Remember, he said, that cost us billions of dollars, billions of dollars. I finally got it out. I think you'll probably see where this is going. So for this case, I'm fairly certain that he's talking about the Leviathan offshore gas discovery. This is one of the largest um, discoveries of natural gas in like 20 years. And it's estimated to hold something like 22 trillion cubic feet of recoverable natural gas and like maybe a half a million barrels of oil. And so BB makes this deal in 2016 with the Texas-based 
Noble Energy and Israel's Delek Group, and it gave them control of those offshore gas fields. And then the courts end up blocking it. Why? Well, the agreement was basically a 10-year deal with the government committing to leaving the taxes, the export quotas, and, and all of the other regulations around this industry totally unchanged. And that didn't sit well with the courts. So they wrote uh, about that commitment that that binds the government to the outline, including no changes in legislation and opposing legislative initiatives for 10 years cannot stand. So basically, the argument for this goes that BB can't legally decide what the taxes and other regulations are going to be for the next 10 years, you know, with this fucking energy company. Like a lot changes in 10 years and, and future governments might need to change things up. And so BB's, you know, that's not in BB's power to set something in stone today that'll happen later. Here's the kicker, though. Uh, the court didn't say that BB could never do this deal. The court actually said that the cabinet could try to pass a law in parliament um, to change the rules so that this deal could go through. And it, they gave him a whole year to do it, to either you know, make a new law or come up with a new deal that the courts are going to be okay with. Now, I didn't exactly have enough time to fully research how this all got resolved. But what I can say is that I read a different article about a related but separate case uh, from 2019 where the courts ended up allowing Noble Energy, that's the Texas company, to test out their fancy new gas rig in the Leviathan. Also in the same year, Israel stuck, they, they struck a deal uh, to send liquid liquefied natural gas to, um, to the EU. So they built it. They're drilling. In the end, BB got what he wanted. It just got delayed a little bit. So from my admittedly very superficial research, the whole, the whole issue about courts blocking the government, I think it boils down to this. The government says, hey, we're, we're going to do something stupid. And then the court says, you can't do that stupid thing because it's illegal. Pass a new law that allows you to do your stupid thing or find a way to do your stupid thing in a legal way. And that's exactly what the government ends up doing. They either find a less obviously illegal way to do what they want, or they pass a law in the Knesset that makes the stupid thing legal. And most of the time, this totally satisfies the courts, and the courts don't bother them anymore. Is it a pain in the ass for BB? Yup. But I think that's kind of the point of checks and balances here, right? To make it more difficult, but not impossible for any particular branch of the government to do stupid shit. It probably also makes it harder to do non-stupid shit too sometimes, right? But I mean, nothing's perfect. I think in the end, you know, BB and the Israeli government almost always get what they want anyway. So I, honestly, I don't know what the fuss is about. I think it's totally unwarranted. And that kind of leads me to think that there's more nefarious reasons why he wants to kneecap the, you know, the, the court's government and their oversight. Um, but that's kind of conspiracy world, so I won't get into it here. It is, um, it's interesting. It's certainly very interesting. It's hard to, 
to fully understand the reasoning behind it. But if it's, I think next episode, and I, and, and we wanted to touch on this this episode. We just don't have enough time. We're we're already an hour and a half, and this this warrants another hour and a half. Is that we want it? I think we should talk more about some of these ultra orthodox parties and what are their principles. Because I mean, come on, we we already know BB's motivation. Right. It's not hard to figure that one out. He's in trouble. He's he wants in trouble. to hold on to power. Come on, man. He's a center right guy in Israeli standards for years. You know, he had been a proponent of the judicial system for many years. Strong support. Come on. Yeah. Why is he changing his mind? Because of his coalition. And he's mm-hmm. kind of beholden to them. Next episode, let's actually go over and touch on these uh, political parties that are quite strange to us. And um, I think that would be really good. Is there anything else that we want to touch on before we end this? No, man. I had a lot of fun doing this, though. All right. And we hope you had fun, too. Okay, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bro History. We always very much appreciate your attention. If you haven't filled out the survey, please do. It will, it's very important. It's extremely important that you fill out this survey. It is in the show notes, Survey Monkey Survey. It will take you two minutes and f- 45 seconds, right? Is Something that fair? Like that. Mm-hmm. Two minutes and 45 seconds. If you can't do that for your boys, then I don't know. Why do you even listen to us? <laughs> if you don't like us, <laughs> by doing us a small favor. But please, uh, all joking aside, please fill it out. You could win $500 in Amazon dollars. And, um, you know, you know, looking, you can buy yourself a Nintendo Switch for that much money. You could. You could. You could also buy yourself a, give me something good. What's something that's cool? That's basically free money Mm, I don't know I'm blanking I'll come up with a list for the next episode a nice (laughs) chair you could you can get a nice chair a nice office chair you get yourself a yeti cooler like a really high level one that's actually probably closer to like a hundred bucks you can get five of them you can get five (laughs) of them you can get you can get a tarp a beach, like a really nice beach tarp. Summer's coming up soon. So um, that's something that I, would, I would buy, like a really nice beach tarp where you can um, kind of make your own gazebo. That's another thing that you mm-hmm. could purchase for $500. Another thing that you could pro- purchase is maybe a new AC unit. <laughs> yeah, actually. A new air conditioning unit if you're getting a window ready for unit. summer. Um We'll think of more things that you can buy for $500 on Amazon that would make it more juicy to fill out the survey and have a chance to win $500 in Amazon dollars. We have to be clear. It's Amazon dollars. Okay. I'm going to shut up now before we never listen again. Um, thanks, guys, for listening to another show. You can also rate and review the podcast. Join us on Patreon. Danny, anything else? All right. Peace. Peace.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.